Uh, Father, uh, we, don't, we don't deserve uh, to even be part of something so beautiful as this this morning. Um, we, we do the things we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things we should do. And with Paul, I say, who, who will deliver us from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we don't deserve that, Father, but you did that for us in Christ, and it is beautiful, just like we sang. It is beautiful, Father, and I pray that somebody here this morning would see the beauty of Christ for the first time, that you'd open their eyes uh, to see him on that cross is beautiful. To see him risen is beautiful. To see him at the right hand of the Father is beautiful. Uh, because he took our punishment. He took what we deserve. Um, so that we can step on eternity's shores. So Father, I pray that you do that in this room this morning. I pray that you do that in this city. Uh, across the globe in Shanghai and New Delhi and London and Paris and Alaska, uh, South America, Central America. Father, do that here across the globe and everywhere in between, God. May people see Jesus high and lifted up because the word is preached this morning. Um, would you allow relationships to be healed, Father? Sin to be repented of. Rebellion to be broken because your spirit is moving throughout this whole planet through your word, through the preached word. God, I pray for the nations right now. Uh, those that haven't heard of you yet, uh, would you send laborers, Lord, to preach the gospel to these nations? We pray for the persecuted church, those that are suffering in prison cells, away from their families, that are starving that are wondering if they'll see tomorrow. Would your spirit bring them strength this morning? And would you draw people to Jesus Christ because of their suffering? Would you help them suffer well and make Christ be magnified because of it? We pray for Ronnie this morning. He laid a message on his heart. And I pray that he would step aside and the spirit would speak through him powerfully. And that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning the beauty of Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you. And uh, yeah, so the name of, I named it the People Rejoice and Relapse. And I'll go a little further into why. That was the name that I, I, I chose into because that's exactly what we will see today in Nehemiah. Now, I'd like to start by really quick giving you an illustration, an example of the second law of thermodynamics. Any physics majors in here? All right, perfect. <laughs> Nobody. Good. So if I butcher it, I will be okay. Well, here's what the second law of thermodynamics in physics says. It says that 
Isolated systems gravitate towards the thermodynamic equilibrium, also known as a state of maximum, maximum entropy or disorder. It also says that heat energy will flow from the, an area of low temperature to an area of high temperature. So right about now you're going, what are you talking about? And let me explain it because I need it. I needed to get a simpler definition for this. So let me explain. Here's what it is. In a natural order of the universe, things degenerate rather than come together. That's what the law is talking about. So, for example, if I am at home and I have a frying pan on top of the stove and I take the frying pan off the stove, what would happen? Heat diffuses, right, in the air leaving the pan cooler. And unless heat is added again, or if I put the pan, the frying pan back on the stove, it would obviously cool off and settle back to room temperature. That's the example of the second law of thermodynamics. And what we see in this science law, in this law of thermodynamics, is, is found also to be true in us. And here's what I mean by that. Once you and I ignore our source of heat. All of us are prone to drifting away from the things of God. You can look all the way back from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation and to today. And, and we still have the same tendencies as sinful yet redeemed men and women of God. So we're going to look at how we're prone to drift. But before we get there, let me rewind a little bit just in case not everyone was here. Last time I was with you, I had the privilege of standing here and walking through an overview of Nehemiah chapter 1 through chapter 6. And over the following days after that Sunday, several of you reached out and, and mentioned how marveled you were at the Hurricane Andrew story. And, and as I described that Sunday, my experience in that little closet, it, it got so intense that um, you, you can hear a pin drop in here. And several of you brought that up, and I found it quite interesting because my purpose of the hurricane story was obviously to, to, to give a practical illustration of a city in devastation, a city with broken walls and with people living in hopelessness. And as we began reading through Nehemiah, and we read about a city in a similar situation, not due to a hurricane, but rather a city that was torn down by the Babylonian army, sending many into exile and slavery, we talked about the city of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem. And we said that this took place around 445 B.C. And as we fast forward to 2019, we also find ourselves living in a city of brokenness, enslaved to sin, and filled with hopelessness right here in Spartanburg. See, it really doesn't matter whether you're secular or whether you're a Christian or you practice some other religion. Everyone can just look around in your city, in our city, and around the world, and everyone can say that something has gone wrong. Nobody argues that. What that something is, is what varies between people to people, but ultimately 
everyone would agree that the world is broken and needs repair. So to quickly recap, we said that if we're going to be a church that surrenders to God's leading and impacting our city and the world, then we need to beg God to help us to be people who are willing to look at a broken world, people who are willing to respond to risk with bold faith, people who are willing to be disciplined in connecting passion with strategy, and people who will not be surprised by the challenges to the mission. Now, if you haven't read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, or if you haven't read the book of Nehemiah, the book ends in a very strange way. It's just a strange book. At the end, it's just, it, it, it ends leaving you with the same reaction when someone tells you a really bad punchline to a joke. Or, or when someone tells you a really bad punchline to a story. It kind of leaves you just kind of staring and, and kind of just saying, what, would, what just happened? And, and today what I hope to do is I hope to get through chapter 13 but to help you better understand chapter 13, let, let me summarize what's happening or what's happened since we left off in chapter 6. So, here's an overview, a Nehemiah overview. In about 445 BC, Nehemiah had brought a group of Israelites from captivity in Persia and back to Jerusalem. And with them had rebuilt the walls of the city in spite of tremendous opposition. And we saw that all the way through chapter 6. But the wall was completed at the end of chapter 6. And then we get to chapter 7, and it's a record of those who returned to exile, from exile. Gives the genealogy of those who came back to Jerusalem. And then it goes to chapter 8, the reading of the law. And, and in chapter 8, the people gather, and Ezra shows up, the priest Ezra shows up, and, and reads to them the law of Moses, reads the scripture, which I remember, they have neglected the scriptures of God for a very long time at this point. So Ezra shows up, gathers everybody at the square, central place, and begins to read the law day after day after day. So Ezra reads the law. The people begin to grieve. Because as they hear in the law, they, 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 be, they begin to understand and see how much of God's will they have failed to do. And we see that in, in chapter 9, we're going to see a climax 24 days later when, when after Nehemiah, or excuse me, after Ezra begins to read, we're going to see this big climax in chapter 9 when there's a renewal of the covenant. So, People begin to grieve and then begin to consecrate themselves and they begin to fast and, and worship. And, and then Ezra begins this amazing prayer in chapter 9. And for 37 verses in chapter 9, Ezra's prayers points to God's grace and Israel's failures. God's grace and Israel's failures, and God's grace and Israel's failures over and over and over again, over 37 verses. But let me tell you, what if you have not had the chance to read, if you have yet gone to Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10 and read what happens there, 
how they lead into worship, and for days they're worshiping, and for days they're hearing scripture, and for days they're grieving, and they begin to look at God and say, we want this God, we have kept our eyes off you, God, and we need you, we need you, we need you now. That's what the blessing of the prayer is from Ezra. His prayer is actually a response to verse 5 in Nehemiah chapter 9. And it says, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, this is a prayer and response where, where the, the Levites are the ones that, that say this. And, and, and here we're going, wow. I read this and I said, when was the last time that I looked at Scripture, looked at God and said, I want to stand up and I want to praise. I just want to praise you, Lord, because you're everlasting to everlasting and blessed be your glorious name and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. And that's what Ezra's prayer does. It blesses the glorious name of God, which is so exalted that no blessing or praise can ever be High enough. But Ezra comes pretty close as humanly possible. But the point of Ezra's prayer is this. For God's people to marvel at his inexhaustible grace towards them. The point of chapter of Ezra's prayer is for you and I as God's people to be marveled at his inexhaustible grace towards us. Which then brings Ezra, as we go forward, into this petition in verse 32. And he's asking God once again for deliverance and leading to the covenant renewal of the Israelites. So here we are in 9, chapter 9, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome and who keeps his covenant of love after this it brings us to the big climax of chapter 9 verse 38 when 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 they're here they're saying now therefore our god the great god the mighty awesome who keeps his covenant of love that's the kind of god that you and i have today i want you i want you to hear this that's the kind of god that we serve. That's the kind of God that loves us. That's the kind of God, like Richard said, that has chosen us and predestined us, not by anything we've done, by his grace and his mercy, to work in all things for his good and his perfect will. A God that is great, that is mighty, that is awesome, that is covenant-keeping, lovingly kind, that's the kind of God he is. Let's not forget that. We just like the Israelites need to be reminded day after day after day, this is the God that has chosen us. And in verse 38, they begin the prayer by saying, in view of all this. Now, in view of what? In view that of all the centuries that have passed by, long Ago, great, mighty, awesome, covenant-keeping, loving work of God, in view of that, and because of that, we are making a binding agreement 
putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So what happens here, after the climax of this chapter 9, is the covenant renewal takes place in chapter 10. And what we see in the overview of the next few chapters is that the covenant renewal takes place in chapter 10. In chapter 11, there's, it records Jerusalem's population and the villages of Judah. And in chapter 12, a huge dedication for the wall takes place. If you haven't read it, I mean, these people know how to party. They had all kinds of music, and it, I mean, they went all out. They had to be somewhat Dominican, somewhat. <laughs> I'm just saying, they had to have someone, because they went all out in chapter 12, in the dedication of the wall. But it was a celebration. It was a celebration of what God was doing, or had continued to do, had done in the past, did then, and continues to do. It was a celebration of God's work again through their lives not only that but it's also a celebration of the people of God who day in and day out did what they were supposed to do to build this wall now we got to also look that it doesn't you got to remember here God's grace and sovereignty is not separated from our duty and our responsibility as followers of Christ We just don't pray and wait, just wait for God to just do it. We pray, and in obedience, we walk, and we say, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. And that's what we saw. That's why they celebrated the dedication of the wall. Big celebration. So here's where we pick up today. We pick up, let me just say this, that when when Richard asked if I would teach today, I began to prepare with the attempt again to, you know, maybe encourage you with another missions message. You know why? Because that's, that's what we missions pastors are supposed to do, right? We're supposed to keep the mission in front of you. We're supposed to keep the message that mission comes out of our discipleship. And as we're following Christ, we cannot follow Christ and not live on mission. It just, it's birth out of following Christ in obedience. But the more I read through these last seven chapters in Nehemiah, the more I marveled at the massive foundation of God's grace, free, sovereign grace in my life. And it was hard for me to go any further than that. As a matter of fact, I could have sat in chapter 9 all and chapter 10 all day long. We could have stayed there. We today could stay there in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Just a beautiful prayer of confession of sin before God. But here's what Nehemiah chapter 13 will do for us because my hope is that as we look to the strange ending in chapter 13, I hope we can get to chapter 13 toward the end, but my hope is that when we look at it, that we may marvel at his inexhaustible grace towards us. But, but let me just tell you, if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, this is what chapter 13 is going to do. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Christ, chapter 13 
is going to show us some truths about us, some realities about us. And, and what's always been true about us as people of God is that we're prone to do the same things over and over again. You can look through history and we're prone to do the same thing over and over again. If you're, and if you're here, maybe you're here today and, and, and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, you never placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe that's you. And, and if that's you, then what, what I hope the text does is I hope it helps you understand some of our inconsistencies that we have. Because we have them. We have them. And, and that's when people, I, I, I love when people say that Christians, oh, they're hypocrites. What they're really saying is that there's some inconsistency in our lives that they see that don't line up to who we say we are. But it's, it's really not understanding inconsistency or the grace of God or the life of a follower of Christ. So my hope is if that's you, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, my hope that the text will help you understand some of our inconsistency. But more than that, I, what I do hope is that it will draw you to the cross and that it will open your heart to the beauty of God and inexhaustible grace for you as well. So, all right, Nehemiah chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13. Starting, we'll pick up with verse 4 here, and it says this. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. And he was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings. And incense. And temple articles. And also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites. Musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions of the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in, thir- in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Now, let me stop there. If you remember in the early chapter 1, how the whole story started with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer of the king of Persia, the Persian king. And if you remember, in the first chapter, he hears about the condition of Jerusalem and the condition of his people in Jerusalem. And he, begin, he just begins to weep. He's broken by the condition. He weeps. And then we see that he begins to, what does he do for days later? He begins to pray and fast and go before God, leaning on the scriptures, leaning on prayer and saying, oh God, I have this burden, help me. He had a burden, he wanted to do something about it, but fear was real, if you remember. The fear he had was because the Persian king was completely against the Israelites. He was a cupbearer for the Persian king for the reason that he was captive. Now, if you're here and you don't know what a cupbearer was, what that means was he was in charge. He was in charge of tasting all the food and all the drinks before the king to make sure there's no poison in it. Any takers? Right. Right. So 
Here we are, and Nehemiah hears this, and what he wants to do next is he has this, he knows he has to go. He, he knows he, he, he wants to be a part of making a difference, of, of being a part of rebuilding that wall, but he has to ask the king, who wants nothing to do with them, for permission. So he goes ahead after prayer and after fasting and asks the king, here's what's going on. Here's why your boy is so sad the last few days. And through prayer and fasting, we see once again the hand of God, the sovereign hand of grace of an almighty God. Because the king grants him permission to leave and go. But not only that, he gives him permission and the sovereign hand of God again provides through the king, supplies to start rebuilding, which is beautiful. So here we are, and on the 32nd year, he returns back to the king, and sometime later, he asks for permission again, and back to Jerusalem he was. Now, this is quite interesting, because let me tell you, why would the king let him Go again. This hand of favor. Recently, let me give you a good example of this. Recently, last week, we had the interest meeting for the team that's going to the Middle East. And it was a, just a meeting regarding some of the things that will happen and what the ministry looks like and, and some of the things that we can and cannot do and why. And I got from a dear brother here, I got a great question asked at the end of the meeting. As I was explaining the type of government in the place we're going to be at and what's not allowed, my brother made a great question. He said, if the government does not allow for this to take place because it's a Muslim community, country, then, then how are you able to still go and do it and the government not do anything about it? And my answer was simply the hand of God. The favor of God over that, which keeps us in going again and keeps us doing what he calls us to do in that area. That's the only way I can explain it. And that's the only way Nehemiah can explain the king saying, go and hear. And then comes back here, we see in chapter I mean, in verse 6, that again he returns. And, and, and it says here, Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now, here's what's happened since chapter 10 through 12. Nehemiah sets these reforms. We just talked about that, and people are serious about God again. All right, so they signed this covenant, and they're following God. They're intentionally about pursuing God. They've lined themselves back up with the obedience to God and he heads back to the king of Persia, 800 miles away, and then later returns to Jerusalem to find that all these reforms, all the things they just finished worshiping, all the things they just finished praying about, all these things that they just finished saying, it's, it's, a, it's a renewal of our covenant. 
have begun to fall apart. And what you need to know is that Tobiah had actively worked against the reforms of Nehemiah since the beginning. In fact, as a matter of fact, in Nehemiah 6, Tobiah actually hired a false prophet to prophesy, prophesy to Nehemiah and tell him that God had told Nehemiah, told him that he was going to be murdered and that he should leave, get off the wall, stop working, go. I'm a prophet. I'm telling you, this is what God has told me. So Tobiah had been intentionally undermining the people of God. So when Nehemiah leaves back to the king of Persia, we read that one of the caretakers here of the house of God, now you got to remember what the house of God represented. The house of God was the center which God's people were encouraged, motivated, comforted, corrected, and sent out to live for God. And we see here that this caretaker is making a house for Tobiah in the middle of the house of God and is clearing out aspects of worship to God in order to make room for a man, a man that's working against God. So it brings me to the first point I want you to know. Because remember, the person that was assigned was one of the Israelites, one of the ones that were under oath now, under the renew of the covenant. And the first point I want to make is that we are people who are all prone to drift away from holiness. We are people who are all prone to drift away from holiness. The reality is that we all have a tendency over a period of time to grow careless or negligent about holiness. We tend to allow things in our lives that shape us in a way that does not motivate us toward God, but rather pulls us away from God. And for some, for the most part, what we're going to, what's going to get most of us isn't some huge sin. It, 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 it's, it's a morally neutral area, that thing that, is, that isn't blatantly evil or wrong. is that, that, that thing that's in the blind spot, and for whatever reason, we, when we give it room in our hearts, it distracts us and slowly robs us of our affections for Jesus. One of the writers for Desiring God says, for many of us, the most dangerous sins are not the ones that will get us excommunicated or bring public shame on our families. They're the sort that can carry right into the church without anyone noticing and what happens over a period of time is that we make room for these things in our lives and rather than being serious about keeping a check on them or eradicating those things we we drift and I hope you and I I hope we can see how God has been very gracious throughout this drift because you and I drift and he's been very gracious to us, and he provides a couple things that really help us. I don't know if it was last week, the week before, a few weeks, within the last several weeks, Richard had mentioned some of the things that keep us focused and rooted. And one of those things is the Word of God. It's not on there. The Word of God. So there are a couple things that God gives us to really help us. The first thing is the Word of God. 
The reason you have that book, your Bible, or the reason you, you, you have the scriptures on your lap right now or maybe on your device is, is that, once again, God might guide you and may guide my life. Because the reality is we need to be people of the word, shaped by the word, and guided by the word of God. That's why daily we run back to the word of God. But that's not all he gives us. He gives us the word of God, and he also gives us the community of faith. Now, this is very important. Because we have probably all heard the example, the term, spiritual blind spots. And the spiritual blind spots are those areas where we just don't see the sin. We, we don't see it. And, and we, have, we all have these blind spots. And because of the blind spots, God has given us the word so that the Holy Spirit might open our eyes to them in studying the scriptures. And he's also given us godly friends who know us well. Now let me share something with you. Let me be honest. You probably haven't done this, but I have made some really dumb decisions in my life. I have made some really stupid mistakes. Some of these mistakes have caused a lot of pain. And as I think back on those times, I can 100% of the time, I can always go back and I can go back to the blind spot areas. Things that I allowed that began to grow and began to pull me away from the things of God. And let me tell you, my Biggest mistakes when it comes to making dumb decisions have happened after I came to know Christ. I can't pull the card off. I was secular and I was worldly and I, I know. Some of the pain that I've caused and experienced have come after being a child of God because i prone to drift from God's holiness. And the best thing you and I can do is embrace the word of God and allow the Holy Scriptures to feed us. Allow the Holy Scriptures to point where these blind spots are. And the next thing you and I can do is to be involved in a community of faith. Godly friends who know you well. Knowing that you and I are prone to drift, prone to wander, God has given us ways to stay safer and stay safe in water. I, I, I got to tell you, for the last six years, by the grace of God, I've been here now, wow, it's been, it's been almost nine years. Um, worshiping here on staff four years. No, we've been here eight years. Wow, time flies. So by the grace of God, We've been here eight years as a family, and for the last seven years of those eight, I've had the privilege 
And I praise God for this daily. Of, of, of meeting with a brother here, a brother of this church. And we try to meet on a weekly basis, every Thursday. And this is a brother that I allowed to be a part of my life. This is a brother that I sit with and we go and we talk about the things of life that draws away. This is a brother that can point out sin in my life. They can point out these blind spots. That is why God has given us the word of God and has given us each other, which is why we want from here always in this platform, you hear it from Richard, you hear it from Chris, you hear it from Yaka, whoever's, whoever's up here. We always talk about the importance of community. Why? Because it's just not good enough for you to come every Sunday and just show up on Sunday and that's it. You will not pull out of the community of faith what you should be pulling out of the community of faith if sermons and songs are all you're getting. If that's all you're getting on a week to week, you're missing out. You're missing out. And we just need to get over this whole thing that my relationship is just between me and God. We were not created for that. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. You and I were created for community. And we need each other. I need you. We need each other. We don't need the pretend you. You don't need the pretend me. You don't need the Ronnie that can come up and, and give you this and, and, and just mask what's going on. That's the last thing we, we need. What you need, what we need is the perfect you and I, the perfect each other, the ones who, who, who have it all together and seem like they have no struggles and, and they wear this cape and, and, and they never have any doubts and, and the marriages are always going great and the kids always obey and everything's just perfect. That, I mean, if you know that person, I mean, just flat out call them out because that doesn't happen. In love. <laughs> Always in love. But let's be real. That's not reality. We are broken people in a broken world, prone to drift away from the holiness of God. And that is why you and I need each other. And look at the time. <laughs> wow. Wow. There is no way I'm going to get to the end of chapter 13. And that's okay. Because if I go any further, I think Dean will really be upset. But here's what I do want you to know. <laughs> Our weaknesses edify and encourage one another to greater holiness. Our weaknesses edify and encourage each other to greater holiness. That's kind of strange, to be honest with you, isn't it? 
that, that strength or, or maybe, maybe perceived strength can actually at times hinder our growth in the things of God. But that's what this world wants. This world wants us to be, have it all right. Everything is tight. Everything's good. I don't mean body-wise. I'm talking about like in, in life. Everything's tight. Everything's good. Everything's in order. Everything, and, and, and we have these perceived strengths. And, and we bring that into the church and into the, the relationship of community and not realizing that at times it can hinder our growth in the things of God. When in honesty, weaknesses have a way of stirring us up to greater holiness and creating safe places for us to experience the grace of God. There, there, there is just something about sitting down with somebody and just being able to share our weaknesses. We're prone to drift from God's holiness. And God provides ways for safe waters into and, and keep us out of dangerous waters through his word and through others. Now, I think that I may be able to get through another point. Dean, I'll be right with you. Might be able to get through another point. The second point I want you to see is that we are people who are prone to drift by doing rather than being. That is, listen, this is huge. And a lot of times we all fall into that because we're doers. A lot of times we, we misunderstand grace and we're prone to drift by doing rather than just being. Now let me explain what I mean through that. As a matter of fact, in earlier verses, it says, for example, in those days I saw in Judah people treating, treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. And people brought fish and all kinds of goods and sold them in the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing? Fanning the Sabbath day, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? So once again, here we see a tendency to do the same thing than before. Nehemiah is saying, didn't our fathers do this before? Didn't Solomon do this? Haven't we done this before? Haven't we already received what happens when we drift from God like this? And here we are looking at Nehemiah thousands of years later, and Nehemiah is pointing a thousand years before and going, haven't we played this game before already? Haven't we done this? So we're people that are prone to drift by doing rather than being. And what I mean by that is the Sabbath was woven into a fabric of how God created the universe to be. Because you and I, by our nature, are going to try to earn what cannot be earned. You and I are going to try that. And there's something, it even goes into our blind spots. There is something that happens in us when we complete a task, especially if you're a, if you're a list guy. I'm, I'm a list person. I, I'm a, I'm a to-do list person. 
I have one in my car. I have one at home. I have one on my phone. I have one at the work, office, desk. There's something that happens when we complete it. When we're able to check something off, we get this kind of I've accomplished something feeling that occurs in our soul. I'll tell you why. Like Liz, the other day, a couple weeks back, went to the women's retreat for the weekend. And when she left to the weekend retreat, I said, I made my list of things I was going to do. And I made sure that when she got back, these things were done. So when she got back, she said, oh, you washed the clothes. And I responded, yeah, I did all five loads. I unloaded the dishwasher. I dusted all the rooms. All the kids are good, healthy, fed, dressed. Everybody's clean. My cape came out. I was super dad, right? I, I mean, I was super dad. My chest came out, and I'm like, look at me. I accomplished something. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this husband-father thing good. It doesn't take too long for that to be a blind spot and for us to be enslaved to the doing instead of the being. And then what happens is we, we become this identity. We, we have this whole identity. Now it's caught up in that doing. And I have to do not only that, but I have to do my responsibility. That's one of your pastors here. I have to carry the weight that's impossible. i got to be a great husband, a great daddy. And I'm crushed and owned. And what God just wants us to be reminded, stop and just be. Ronnie, and just be. Your identity is not in those things. Your identity is in me. Your identity isn't in what you can accomplish or what you can get done or how you can clean yourself up or whether or not you do this or whether or not you do that. Your identity is found in my adopting work, the work of Jesus Christ. I love one of the examples when you go to lead like Jesus encounter. I remember Phyllis standing up, and it was a time where we were about to go in prayer. And I'll never forget this. She said, be still and know that I'm God. She used that verse. You guys have heard this before. Be still and know that I'm God. And then she said, be still and know. And then she said, be still. And then she said, just be just be. We prone to drift by doing rather than being. I have to land the plane without landing on the right track. But I tell you this, I don't know if you're here today. This is what God wanted, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if you're here today, and these are some of the things that God's place in your heart. Maybe scripture this morning, you saw yourself in the Israelites. Maybe this morning, you see how you're prone to drift away from holiness. Maybe today, you, you see yourself and you're prone to drift by doing rather than being. And God is just saying, stop. And soak in the amazing and marvelous grace of our Heavenly Father. Just stop. So here's what we're going to do. I'm out of time, so we got to pray. And here's what I want to pray for you today. 
He just wants to pray for us. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm just pleading and begging God this morning that God would open your heart and your mind to the beauty of his grace, that you may experience freedom from doing and just start being. You can experience forgiveness and mercy today because that's what the grace of God provides for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ and you're just heavy, weighted down, burdened, because maybe you've realized, I'm prone to go back and do the same things. Maybe you're here today and something has happened and you've fallen short. I just want to encourage you today. The God you serve says you're forgiven. The God you serve says, get up again. I love you. And what the blood of Christ, my son, did for you on that cross will cover sins for eternity. And what you just need to hear today maybe is just that. God's grace covers you this morning. May we marvel at his exhaustible grace. Let's pray. Father, so much to say, so much to look through, so much to, so much to ponder, so much to to learn from your holy scriptures, God. And although we weren't able to get to where we wanted, Father, I do pray and proclaim the truth that your word does not return in vain. So today, Father, I pray in the name of Christ. If there's someone here who does not know you, Father, would you draw them to yourself? This grace that the Israelites experienced did not end with the Israelites. You're the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this grace extends, Father. This grace is available. This grace covers us. So, Father, for that person that doesn't know you, may they experience your love and your mercy over and over again today. May you draw them to their knees, draw them to the cross. Open their eyes. Help them see you. For that brother or sister that's here, and they've drifted. (laughs) Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that your grace exceeds our inconsistencies. Thank you that your grace, Father, is never ending. And it is your grace that allows us to stop doing and just be your son, your daughter. So today I pray, encourage that brother and sister with that truth. And it's in the blood of Christ we pray.